0: Good morning, I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on, and today we're going to be in the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 19. So, Revelation chapter 19. Now, if you are uh, familiar with our church, if you've been here, we've been going through this book of Revelation for uh, a few months now, and we're now coming to the conclusion. We're coming to the end of the book of Revelation, and I hope you've enjoyed this Uh, series and and what we've done with it. Uh, But today is going to wrap up the study on it. I will tell you next week, uh, we're going to do kind of a conclusion uh, message on Revelation, and we're going to begin tying in what the rest of the Bible says about what happens with the end times. Uh, So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 24 and 25. We're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at some of the Old Testament references that John, who's the writer of Revelation, uh, some of the Old Testament passages that he refers to and references. And then we're going to talk about what that means to us and how we apply the book of Revelation to our own lives. So today we're in Revelation 19. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me there. Revelation 19, I'll give you a second to locate chapter 19, verse 1. We're going to actually start in verse 6. Sorry, not verse 1, verse 6. It says this, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great Multitude. Now, where have we heard that reference before? Where have we heard the great multitude? If you go back into chapter 7 and 8, we we read about the great multitude who are those who are the followers of Jesus, uh, who, who stand at the throne. So all of us who are followers of Jesus, this is part of who we are. I heard this, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals, mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So, So... Picture this for a moment. We're in heaven, and there's this great celebration. We begin worshiping. And the song that we sing alludes to Jesus being our groom, and we, as the church, as the followers of Jesus, are his bride. If you go through the New Testament, this is a continuous theme that you see throughout the New Testament, where Jesus is our groom, leading, protecting, guiding, and we are his bride. And the idea here is there's about to be this, this great supper, this celebration supper. Now, if you go back, there's this reference to the supper at the end of time throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah chapters 24 through 27 Uh, talk about this extensively. Let me give you a a passage from Isaiah 25 as an example. Isaiah 25 verses 6 through 8 says this, "...on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow, of of aged wine well-refined." And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that has cast over all peoples, the veil that has spread over all nations. And He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good party right? The best food, the best drinks, the best celebration. And it's so good that we will be incapable of feeling pain or sorrow. He's going to wipe every possibility of tear away from our eyes. He's going to take all of the reproach, all of the negative, all of the things against us through our lives. He's going to wipe that away. And we're going to just celebrate with Him. So, this meal is alluded to multiple times throughout the Old Testament. But what is this meal exactly? If you read all of Isaiah 24 through 27, you're going to read that this meal is the celebration meal that happens at the end of time. That celebrates the victory of the King. The victory of Jesus. And so, we're, we will be celebrating with Jesus in this big meal, the the victory over evil and sin and death. Because here's the thing, and this is my big idea today. Here's the thing. Revelation teaches us many things. God, God, we can trust in Him. We can have hope in Him. But ultimately, the climax, the pinnacle of the book of Revelation is that God wins. And I've said that before. This has been the big idea a few weeks past, but I can't gloss over what this passage says. God wins. But here's the cool thing. Think about the tense that I put there. God wins. Is that accurate? No. Because the moment Jesus rose from that grave, He won. You see, we're not looking for a hope of something that might come or is to come. This is a hope we can place our faith in right now. God already won. When Jesus rose from the grave, when he stepped out of that tomb, he declared victory. He has already defeated the enemy. He has already vanquished sin and the hold that it has on you and I. We just have to live in that victory. And so the fact of the matter is, is God wins, but God has already won. And we're just seeing the celebration that is taking place because of his victory. So let's keep reading. Look at with me in verse 11. It says, Then, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Verse 13 He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Do you know who this is yet? Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him also on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. A rod of iron, that's a reference to the scepter that a ruler would have. Continue, middle of 15, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So, Jesus is pictured here as the victorious warrior going out leading his army. Now, the hard part with this imagery is that usually when you would see a a king going out on the white horse and leading his army, you didn't know whether victory was coming or not. You were hoping that he would return victorious, but you didn't know what the circumstances and what the outcome might be. But how is he pictured here with this? He's not pictured as a king that we hope will have victory. He is pictured. The imagery here is that he is a king who's taking his army out, but he's already gained victory. He's already won the battle. In this imagery, he's just putting a doorstop. He's putting an end to the war. Now, if you read through this passage, there are tons of references, titles that he's given, a sword that's coming out of his mouth. Every single thing you see here is a reference back to Revelation chapter 1. So, Jesus is saying all these things in Revelation chapter 1 about who he is, that he is the one of truth, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he has a sword coming out of his mouth. His word is his weapon and all of that is a reference to Revelation one, and it's being mentioned here again to bookend the book of Revelation. Now let's continue going, verse nineteen. Now remember, there is a bee- there are two beasts. One is the antichrist, and one is his prophet that will lead people to worship the antichrist. And then there's the dragon who is Satan, who is leading the two beasts. So verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and the birds gorged on their flesh. That doesn't sound all that great, but I don't want to be on that side, right? So, if you've been following along with us through the book of Revelation, you've seen these characters, these images, these symbols of what is going to happen. And there's definitely the dragon who is Satan, working his schemes and doing things to deceive people away from God. And one of the biggest things he does is he rises up a beast, a a, a false point, a a false person, a false entity that we would worship, and then another beast that will lead us to worship that beast. And here we see that those beasts are defeated and cast out. They're, They're destroyed He has victory over that which the world will worship. Everything that draws us away from God, Jesus is going to destroy. Everything that pulls our worship away from Him is going to end. It will be destroyed. We cannot place our faith in anything other than Jesus. Look with me as we continue on chapter 20, verse 7. So there's been this mention of a thousand years. If you're a Bible, someone who studies Revelation, there's a lot of people who talk about the millennium. Well, that's here in chapter 20. It's in the first seven verses. I'm skipping over that because I'm coming to it next week. So just know I will talk about it. I'm not talking about it today. It's too much. So, But let's see what happens after that. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. And when I saw the great white horse and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened." of fire. So, there's a lot to unpack here. Basically, the, the Satan and death and Hades and chaos and everything that is ungodly is judged, it's defeated, and it's cast away, it's, it's done away with. And, and there's this reference to this Gog and Magog. What a weird name, right? I don't advise naming your child Gog or Magog. It's pretty much a guarantee they're going to be ridiculed, and made fun of. But what is this reference to Gog and Magog? Because if we're to understand this, we need to understand what John is pointing back to. Well, John is pointing back to Ezekiel 38 and 39, which talk about Gog and Magog extensively. Now, Gog and Magog are representatives of the final push by the world to defy or try to battle against God and His will. And let's see what Ezekiel 38 has to say about Gog and Magog. (coughs) Ezekiel 38, starting in verse 1, says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, "Thus says the Lord God: Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal." Now, God is addressing through Ezekiel these t- this character Gog, who is the ruler of Magog. Now, now let's continue on. I'm going to skip down to verse 18 of Ezekiel 38. It says this: But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God. My wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. So, so Gog is going to come against the people of God, according to Ezekiel 38. And there's this reference that God's wrath is going to be poured out and there's going to be an earthquake. Now, weeks and weeks ago, We talked about a reference in Revelation to thunder and lightning and earthquake. And it's mentioned several times through Revelation. But every time that you see God and some occurrence of thunder, lightning, and earthquakes, it's almost always God's presence and God acting directly in some way. So we're not talking about a situation where the powers of the earth that are opposed to God are going to come against him, and God's going to sit back and let his army take care of it. According to Ezekiel 38, God himself at some point is going to act himself. And in his infinite, almighty power, nothing can stand. He will defeat the enemy. Ezekiel 38, verse 23, so a few verses later, it says... So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God wins, His power is not going to allow the forces of Satan, the forces of evil, the forces that are opposed to him, he will not allow them to continue. He will defeat them. And he has the power to do so. As a little side note, we, a few weeks back we talked about Armageddon and how in the Greek it's actually pronounced Charmageddon, and that it's the Mount of something. It's either ha- Mount of Megiddo or Mount of Mikado. And the the last reference is the Mount of Assembly, which is Zion, the city of Jerusalem. It's interesting to note if you read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Isaiah when he talks about these battles that will take place, they're always against the Mount of Assembly where God and his people, Mount Zion, will reign. So, Revelation tells us then that death and Hades will have their authority removed Their keys taken and they will be destroyed. They'll be cast into that lake of fire where they will not have any power or authority over us anymore. Meaning that as far as eternity goes, we don't have to worry about pain or suffering or death or Hades or any of those things. They won't exist in our eternal existence with God. Okay, let's keep going. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, every time you see a reference to the sea being destroyed, that was an old Jewish and Middle Eastern mythology. Uh, there was this belief that Middle Eastern society, culture, uh, along with Israelite culture, believed that there were two kinds of waters in the world. There was chaotic waters and there was life-giving waters. And anytime you see a reference to the sea uh, or large waters like this, in a reference like this, it's talking about the chaos, the powers of destruction, And so he's saying here that the old earth that had been tainted and decayed by sin, along with the sea, along with chaos, they're going to be wiped off, and there's going to be a replacement. It's going to be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. Let's keep going. Verse 2. And I saw a holy city, the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So we see this reference to a new heaven and a new earth. So let me dispel a theologically inaccurate American myth. There's this myth, I was taught it growing up, that our eternal existence would be in heaven, like in the clouds. Revelation doesn't say that. Neither does Ezekiel or Isaiah. It's very clear that our eternal existence will be in a new creation. We will receive new bodies and we will exist on the new earth. An earth not tainted by sin. You see, the reason why we see Things die and decay. The reason we have sickness, the reason we have evil in the world is because sin was introduced and that sin rippled out around the world and affects everything. And God's going to, at the end of time, He is going to say, yep, that destruction, that decay, that taintedness from sin, I'm going to wipe it clean and I'm going to create a perfect existence again like the Garden of Eden. And we will receive perfect bodies. You won't experience pain or death or sorrow. You will. We, as the followers of Jesus, will live a perfect existence. I've had people ask, well, what kind of bodies will we get? I have no idea. I had a pastor Uh, when I was younger that used to say, I don't know what we're going to get. Maybe God's going to surprise us and we're all going to be three feet wide and three feet tall. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows what a perfect body looks like? But one way or the other, it will be an existence where we don't experience anything negative because we'll be directly in the presence with God Himself So this reference to the new heaven and new earth is found throughout the Old Testament. I mentioned that earlier. So let me give you some references and then I'll read one of these passages that points to it. You can find this new heaven and new earth language in Isaiah 25, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel 43, and many others. Should I say that again? Guys, this is biblical. This is overwhelmingly what the Bible says is, the, is our eternal existence. Let me give you a reference, uh, read you one of these. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 18 says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold... I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And doesn't that sound exactly like what John is saying here in Revelation 21? So, so our existence will be in this new heaven and new earth, and we will be in perfect joy in perfect gladness, rejoicing forever in God's presence and creation. So there's a new city, new Jerusalem, a new earth, a new heaven. And there's a little bit of a new temple that's going to be created. So let me, let me read you Revelation 21, verses 15 again. Look with me in verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. So he's walking around with an angel, and this angel has this measuring stick, basically. Verse 16. The city lies four-square. Now, the Greek there indicates a cube. It's the word for a cube. So think a big block, three-dimensional. Lies four-square. Its length, the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod. 12,000 stadia. Now, I'll talk about that here in just a second. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each of the gates made, a, made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Whoa! I don't know about you, but my house is not like this. But if you think for a second, if you read in the Bible and some of Jewish writing about the temple of old, Solomon's temple, the first great temple that was built, it was lined on the inside with gold and jewels and uh, ordained with lots of carvings and uh, depicted all these different things. And so you'd walk into the temple. Well, you wouldn't, but a priest could walk into the temple. And when you walked in, it would just be this golden room filled with expensive jewels but here's the cool thing there were two sections to the temple this temple was this long rectangular building the first room that you walked into from the front was called the holy place it's where the lampstand was and the altar was and the table with the showbread all that kind of stuff was inside there it's layered with gold but then there was a second room on the back side of the temple called the holy of holies and inside that room, again, solid gold. And in Solomon's temple, there were two solid gold angels with their wings out like this. And their wings touched in the middle. And underneath where their wings were sat the Ark of the Covenant. And do you know what the shape of the Holy of Holies was? A cube, a perfect cube same in width, length, and height, just like what's being described here. So, let me unpack this for just a moment for you. There's this new city, and what's being measured here is not the temple, it's the city. So, where's the temple? Well, these numbers are huge. 12,000 stadia is basically 1,500 miles So imagine a city that's a cube, three-dimensional, that's 1,500 miles in length, width, and height. Can you imagine it? Can you picture it in your mind? No, you can't because it's too big. Even with our modern technology and our understanding of distance and length, this is too big of a structure to imagine in our minds, and it's intentionally too big for us to imagine, because it's a symbolism, it's imagery, and it's supposed to tell us that we as the people of God will be in this new city, and its size will be incalculable. But God's presence will fill all of it. We will literally exist in the perfect presence of God himself. You want to know why there's no suffering, no death, no Evil, no sin, because none of that can exist in God's presence, and we will exist in God's presence. That's what this is telling us. Our existence will be perfect. Now, also, if you look at the measurements and the things mentioned here, it's all categories of 12. I haven't talked about numbers in the book of Revelation for a couple of weeks, but 12 was a number of what? God's people. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 followers of Jesus. The number 12 and its multiples tell us that this is the people of God. The followers of Jesus will experience this. Then I gave you, chapter 21 gave us this long list of gemstones. This is actually out of Ezekiel 28. And if you know anything about Uh, Old Testament jewels and things like that. There are two things that happen with jewels in the Old Testament. Uh, There were jewels on the plate that the, the high priest wore, and there were 12 of them, and they symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel. But the 12 jewels listed here in chapter 21 are not the ones listed for the high priest. If you read Ezekiel 28... The jewels listed here in Revelation and Ezekiel 28 are describing the presence of God. Every element of Revelation 21 tell us over and over and over and over again that our relationship with God will no longer be separated. Guys, I'll tell you right now, there are times that I struggle in my relationship with God and the One of the biggest reasons is because when I pray, I very rarely hear an audible voice speaking back to me, right? It's because my sin has separated me from the perfect presence of God. But in this scenario, we're going to go back to the way things were in the beginning of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, where God, it says in Genesis, in the early parts of Genesis, it says that God would literally come down and walk with Adam and Eve. Let that sink in for a second. What would it be like to wake up one morning, get out of bed, ugh eat your breakfast. Oh, that was good. Take your shower and go, oh man, I'm going to be late to go hang out with Jesus. And you go out the door and there's God. Hey, want to chat? You want to walk? Because our presence will not be separated from God any longer. In the new earth and new heaven we will be in perfect relationship with our God. There will no longer be a disconnect like we experience today because of our sin. That will be removed. You see, God's presence will act as the temple. Look with me in Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. We won't need a temple. We won't need a church, because God will perfectly be in relationship with us. And His presence will be our joy and gladness. So, we will live in His presence and this is recognition of Ezekiel 43 and Isaiah 28. Uh, let me read you a passage out of Ezekiel 43 real quick, and we'll wrap this up. It says this, While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst Of the people of Israel forever, and the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name. You see, God will be our everything. God will be your everything. You may be hearing, you may be going, okay, that's kind of weird. I get it. Maybe you're here and you've never come and to a place where you've placed your, your faith in Jesus and you're going, okay, this sounds kind of off. I've got questions. I want to know more. I would invite you to do this. If you're here and, and you're not a believer, but you've got questions and you want to know more, I would encourage you to do one of two things. Either connect with us in one of the ways that I mentioned at the beginning of the service, a connect card or go to the contact us page of the, the website or whatever. Or come grab me in the foyer. I would love to sit with you on the phone or take you to lunch and answer any of the questions you may have about what it looks like to follow Jesus. But please hear me. I've said this before in this series. There are two sides. There's nothing in between. There's no neutral party when it comes to following God. You are either a follower of Jesus or you are his enemy. It's what the Bible says about us. Because of our sin, because of our disobedience to God, we are in rebellion, active rebellion against Him. But when you become a follower of Jesus and you believe in His death and His resurrection, you believe in what He taught, that rebellion and that disobedience becomes innocent. It gets wiped over. It gets wiped away. And here's the thing, just like Revelation 19 through 21 has been teaching us, there are two destinations for our eternal existence. You can either believe in Jesus or you can pay the criminal price for all of the disobedience and rebellion that you've committed in your life. If you believe in Jesus, you can have all of that wiped away and declared innocent and you can live in this existence that we've been talking about or you can choose not to and live in that eternal punishment instead and i would encourage you if you're not a believer here consider think about what jesus offers and if you want to know more i would love to sit with you and answer those questions so reach out to us but now follower of jesus here if you're a follower of jesus how does this apply to you? We've, kinda, we've got one more chapter. We'll, we'll touch on that next week. But we're, we're at the end of the book of Revelation. And we're studying about the new heaven and new earth, this eternal existence that we will have with God. You can rejoice in that. You can say, oh, I look forward to that. Because my body doesn't work so well anymore. You know, some of you are going, waking up this morning and getting out of bed was a painful endeavor. You sit down and you stand up and your body makes a lot of noise, right? And you feel the effects of sin and decay that, that sin has on the world because it affects you as well. Your eyes, your ears, your muscles don't work the way they used to. And you think, wow, a new body really sounds good about now, right? This sounds nice. But I would challenge you with this. We should rejoice in that, and we should look forward to it. But in that rejoicing, we should also consider our neighbor, shouldn't we? Because while we, as followers of Jesus, will get to experience this kind of existence, our neighbor who does not know Jesus will not. What are you doing to lead your neighbor, your coworker, your family member, your friend, what are you doing to lead those people to the life-changing hope of Jesus? What are you doing? What conversations are you having in order to tell them, I've got some good news for you? Because it's not enough for us to look forward to it. We should also look forward to leading others to it. You see, God wins, but the only way we win is if we follow Him in His victory. And you can lead others into that through Jesus. But the question is, is will you step out of your comfort zone long enough to have that good news, that gospel conversation with someone around you? That's what I leave you with today. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done. We thank you that you've rescued us from sin. You've rescued us from the effects of sin. You've rescued us from the destruction, the decay, the death that sin brings into our lives. Lord, we rejoice that there will come a day when in the new heaven and the new earth, we will feel no pain, no sorrow, there will be no tears. But Lord, in light of that, help us to have a heart for those who do not know you. Help us to recognize that there are people in our lives that also need to be rescued from their sins so that they can experience what we've talked about today. Lord, help us to have the courage. Help us to have the willingness to get uncomfortable and have some gospel, some good news conversations with the people that we have in our lives so that we can lead every generation to the life-changing hope of Jesus. We thank You, Lord, and we lift all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.